You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast, your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. How's it going, Tim? I'm not next to you now. Nope. Now we are back to uh, back to recording remotely. I guess that's sort of the only thing that we can uh, bounce back and forth with each episode. We'll just say where we are, uh, give a little bit of a really, really boring introduction to this podcast, uh, <laughs> and lead right into something hopefully more interesting, some beer. Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, for those who have made comments in the past, we are we are creatures of habit, and we are making our way back to California. Um, this time, we are heading up to Monterey County, uh, which is nearby where you are currently, um, mm-hmm. to Alvarado Street Brewery. Well, see, now when you put it that way, now we have a reason to say why we are in two different places. I'm in the northern part, and you're in the southern part. I'm getting beer from the northern part, and I'm sending it to the southern part. Which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And truly appreciated, that is for sure. <laughs> I will say it's much, much, much easier to uh, bring a four-pack of beers in person than it is to try and figure out the logistics of sending it to you or, uh, I don't know, carrier pigeoning it to you. Multiple uh, there's pigeons. A, there's a whole lot of ways I could get it to you, but being in person and just dropping off a four-pack of uh, all Verado beers uh I hope that works out well. Yes, indeed. It's, it, it is working out quite well. Uh, today, we actually have a uh, fun one. We have Cool Runoffs. This is an uh, IPA. It's an Imperial Double IPA at 8.1% ABV and 50 IBU. They actually describe it here on the can as a yeast-driven double IPA. Um, and if you hadn't caught the uh, little reference there, it is a nice play on um, a classic childhood favorite, uh, Cool Runnings. Yeah, this Disney nice, movie, right? I, I believe so. Or at least it was th- somehow backed by Disney. Like, sort of, it's in the era of the Mighty Ducks and, uh, I mean, Rocket Man was also uh, one of those Disney movies. It's it's just kind of like the the Disney umbrella on the uh, real life movies, not just cartoon movies. Uh, no, uh, it, extended it, over everything in the nineties. It's official. It was an official Disney movie. Says so, so on the uh, on the title image there. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, let's crack this open and and then we can talk about it. Definitely. Oh wow! And this is this one is canned, obviously, but I do have some proper glassware for this, so it is not being <laughs> consumed directly from the can. Hey, hey, me too. And it looks like it was packaged on September 24th. So this is pretty fresh. Relatively, yeah. I've been trying to make it out to Alvarado maybe once a month or so. Um, use my beer stipend, if you would, and uh, grab a couple four-packs uh, the Wednesday that they're announced and the Wednesday that they're released. So it's it's pretty convenient. It's still a heck of a trip. You know, 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. But... You know, split it between a food truck and a pint to something. It's it's not that bad. Yeah, but the question is how many miles? Because it would take me 45 minutes to go like four miles in L.A. <laughs> so I think you've got the better better setup That's there. True. That's true. <laughs> out, out here in Northern California, um, at least between the Bay Area and L.A., stuff's just pretty much super far apart. You do have to take the freeway. I mean, whatever. California, right? It, it's just... There's a whole bunch of different places here, and 
you can kind of just, you know, close your eyes, spin around and, and point a finger and there's going to be a brewery within, you know, <laughs> this 10 so miles, true. 20 miles. Yeah. Yes. Very true. Um, so before we get too deep into um, this beer, I want to read the description that we have on untapped here. Uh, it says all the tropical mosaic you can handle with supporting rolls by candy like El Dorado and citrusy Amarillo. Fermented with an expressive yeast that attenuates to a lesser degree, leaving a silky mouthfeel and softness on your palate. Hmm. Pillowy. So it is coming off very hazy. You cannot see through this guy at all. I'm going to guess that has a bit to do with the um, yeast and clouding it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also I would say the um, the head on it is... It being retained quite well oh yes uh, for you know one of those real hazy uh double ipas i'm not used to seeing a nice head on on this kind of beer so it's nice to see yeah that's true usually they seem to at least the ones that i we've had recently tend to dissipate pretty quickly mm-hmm. now the um the hop aroma definitely jumps out at you it's got the standard sort of um tropical uh, aroma yeah. that you would expect from something that is you know a hazy double ipa Oh my gosh! Yeah, pu- straight up like pog. You know, you get you get a lot of the the pineapple and guava uh, smells from it. Mango, maybe a little bit, um, but it also smells kind of clean. Uh, you know, kind of citrusy. Now, I don't mm-hmm. smell any alcohol, uh, but I do just get lots and lots of hops. Um, this comes in at you said eight point one ABV. Yes. So so. On the double IPA spectrum, a little lower, right? Not 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 super high. No, it's it's not the twelve percent Molotov cocktail I had recently. <laughs> now the flavor is extremely citrusy, but not um it it's it's citrus, it's very very orangey grapefruit, but there's a bit of an extra sweetness that seems to hit towards the end. Maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy, but let me know what you think. Well, what'd you have for lunch, first of all? Because I think that could but we do this podcast recording typically after lunch, and it can definitely be palate uh, wrecking, depending on what what you have. What, what did you have? I, I actually went downstairs to Carl Strauss um, mm. and had a salad. Um, it did. It had a um, kind of like a, a chili ranch dressing. Mm. OK, so maybe some cream, some. Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. Right. Um, and I did also have a Dunkelweizen that they had on tap. So that was a bit more sweet and yeasty, um, not so much bitterness at all on that. So, yeah, I mean, that could definitely be affecting it a bit. Um, so admittedly, my palate wasn't exactly super clean when I came into this. <laughs> the other thing to say is, like, I don't expect our palates to be, you know, fully uh, engorged in the proper words for uh, how to taste beer and, you know, what we should be tasting. Um I am going to be the first to say that I am absolutely not qualified in any sort of certified way to uh, taste <laughs> beer in a professional manner. And yet I do it for a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I am a craft beer fan, if anything. So I had a miso soup for lunch and with rice. So not really palate wrecking, but definitely on the saltier side of things. And so what I what I'm getting from this is not as much citrus um, and more on the 
tropical, definitely just like straight tropical side. This is one of the beers where like you smell it and it tastes exactly how it smells for me, at least. Um, it is definitely smooth, silky, pillowy, you know, all those, all those kind of words for the, the mouthfeel, hashtag mouthfeel. Um, but I really do like this. I, my glass is super clean, but the head retention on this is wondrous. It is just floating there on top and it's not, it is not dissipating right now. No, not at all. And something I think that's interesting too is, um, so this comes in at 50 IBU and for those who aren't too up on that, that's the international bitter unit. Um, and that's how you basically measure the, um, the bitterness or the, um, the alpha acids that are in the, uh, in the beer, well, the hops contain the alpha acids, and that ends up adding to the bitterness. Um, and it's a scale from 1 to 100. So this is 50, and it's lying right in the center. Um, and if you're, for an example here, your standard Budweiser is about 7 IBU. And according to this article, I was just re- looking up really quick, um, Avery's IPA is 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is 50. So right in the center... But I'm, I would expect some sort of, um, you know, bitterness from it, but I'm not getting any sort of lingering bitterness at all. No, um, I, it, it, it's definitely balanced by whatever, uh, kinds of hops, the Eldorado, the, um, Mosaic, especially, I think kind of mellow this all out, um, and, and keep it from being a strictly like West Coast bitter double IPA. Um, typically when you're looking at, Things like hazy IPAs, they're running you more between 25 and 35, I would say. Um, They're, like we have mentioned many, many times before, very good entry-level beers for folks who are uh, not too keen on IPAs. They are more sweet, more, um, you know, floral and fruit-forward IPAs that uh, are, are a great introduction to the style, I think. But this, like you said, even coming in at 50 doesn't doesn't totally feel like it. Now, one of the words that they use on the can, though, is yeast driven. I know that they do at, at Alvarado, they do like to label a majority of their hazy IPAs as yeast driven. But, you know, does that mean that those are equivalent? Is yeast driven equal New England or, you know, how, do, how does that work? So I did find an article on beerandbrewing.com that's called Yeast, a force behind IPA 2.0. And it kind of discusses a little bit of the yeast driven idea. Um, I'll be sure to include that link in the show notes because I'm not going to cover the whole thing. And it's a very interesting read if you're curious about the um, brewing process and how um, yeast plays into it. But it does um, a few excerpts I pulled from it um, starts off with a uh, beer nerd sometimes describes certain styles as yeast driven, meaning that yeast expression is a critical aspect of the finished product. This kind of uh, covers English bitters, Hefeweizens, Belgian inspired styles. They're all under that umbrella, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And well, <laughs> when you're thinking of Belgian beers, a lot of times, too, that is a very, very distinctive yeast character. Oh, definitely. Um, brewers of such styles can really get into heated debates about the relative merits of yeast, um, whereas brewers of American pale ales, they they kind of have a long specified crescendo of exceptionally precise hop additions, and they close it off with a very predictable thing, uh, ferment with American ale yeast. Idea there is that um, there's all this experimentation and play with um, your hop additions, and your hop styles, and then really you just finish it off with your standard uh, American ale yeast. And while that is um, American ale yeast really is um, kind of like what we would think of it as Kleenex, you know, it's it's a brand that covers 
all, they're, they're very different branches that fall underneath it. Um, one of the biggest ones that they mentioned in this article is Chico, which is used on the re- um, West Coast here. But the article does discuss like um, West Coast um, yeast versus East Coast yeast um, and really gives a lot more detail than I'm going to go into. So I would definitely check it out. Um, and they basically say in here that, you know, uh, American IPAs aren't really what they used to be. And today's most creative craft brewers know how to select yeast strains that don't just ferment maltose. So basically they don't just throw any yeast to finish off the product, but they look for yeast that also dance alongside the hops that are at once uh, tropical, citrusy, earthy, piney, and floral. So they're really trying to, um, experiment more with the yeast as, an important and integral part of mixing the flavors um, and really shining through as opposed to just having the hops do all the work. Now it's trying to get everything alongside and really play with the yeast strains that are out there. Because as we know, there there are just thousands upon thousands of different yeast strains, many still to be discovered. And, um, you know, you don't just have to stick with what what everyone else uses. Right, right. And it doesn't need to be, you know, the same thing that you use for all your other beers or um, how you finish all your other IPAs. You can kind of play around with it. I think the one that comes to mind first and foremost is uh, Offshoot, who will typically say exactly which yeast they're using for each of their um, limited run beers. You know, London, London 3, etc. It's kind of cool. Like, I don't know anything about what those impart onto the beer, but kind of just knowing your ingredients and knowing what's going into it um, educates you in a, in a specific kind of way to, um, you know, start to educate you on what those yeasts might mean to beer, which is cool. I, I think it's far less of the, you know, Belgian style. If anything, if you're thinking like yeast and Belgian, that's definitely not how, how this beer is, is finishing for me. Um, it's got a very distinct American flair to it. So I, I propose, uh, Tim, that maybe it's West Coast and Yeast Coast beers. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Maybe not. No, not so much. All right. But either way, it is it is pretty fantastic and it is smooth um, and not at all like leaving any sort of negative uh i don't know negative notes in my mouth i love it yeah yeah it's really really good have any of you out there listening to the show tried cool runoffs from alvarado street you should let us know what you thought on twitter facebook or instagram by tagging us at untapped all right this has been a long time coming uh, we've got a couple of stories that folks have sent in to us uh, about some milestone beers that they have had in the past and kind of what that meant to them. We talked uh, briefly on episode 31 about um, my road to 2,500 and 2,500 uniques uh, here on Untapped. And I finally completed that journey a few <laughs> weeks ago while you were out of the country. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But, Tim, I wanted to read a couple of stories that some folks sent in to us. Yeah, I have a couple of stories here for you. Um, I will say if I if you sent one in and I missed it, I apologize. Um, you can definitely let us know. We can potentially put in a follow up. But I have two here. Um, one is from Max on Instagram. Uh, he wrote in saying, I'm late to the game, but I am listening to episode 31 of the podcast and have a memorable 1000th check in. Uh, Trillium Brewery, if you don't know, is one of the most popular breweries in the Northeast. We definitely know, if not in the country. 
Um, and they generally don't do tab takeover since they have a large following. I did not know that, though. That's interesting. Um, he goes on to say, lo and behold, one of my favorite restaurants in Providence, Rhode Island, announced that they were having a Trillium Tap takeover with food specials. And it worked out that I could get my 1,000th unique check-in during the event. So that's that's kind of a very serendipitous lineup there. Yeah. Well, it, see, the thing is, when you're thinking about like, oh, it's my 1,000th or it's my 2,500th or you're, you know, you're planning um, how to accomplish certain badges, too. It is a lot of planning, right? Some some folks are, you know, planning entire vacations around this or cellaring a beer for years and years so that, you know, on your 5,000th check-in, it's a, a particular beer that you've been holding on to for a certain amount of time. So it's kind of cool to hear that it can be so serendipitous and just, um, you know, like spur of the moment. Yes, definitely. I I I can't say that I've held on to anything specifically for a milestone. Oh, well. No, I, I'll I'll give a little. I only have one, and it's not really that exciting. But uh, let me read the uh, <laughs> let me read the next one here that came in um, on Facebook. This is from Matt. Uh, it says, per your request this week on the podcast, I wanted to br- provide my story with my monumental check ins. Um, he did send screenshots of pretty much every check in just to kind of uh, prove this next point. He says, so first, apparently, I drink the most at this time of year because all my badges fall between August and November. Uh, that's very interesting because I would say uh, definitely somewhere between like October and January, um, you got the holidays there. So it's, it's a mm-hmm. lot more time. You got a lot more um, time off, um, a lot more events going on. So I could see more drinking and badge earning happening in that time frame. Um, he does say, though, that my 1000th check in is especially important to me because I waited until my engagement party to check in in front of all my friends and family. It was a big deal. That is a big deal. That's huge. Yeah, that is that is a huge deal. Wow. And also, like, kind of as a, a, a humble bit of uh, bragging, I guess, a huge honor, honestly, like oh, to yes. be able to be a part of someone's life in, in a time that is important to them, not just around beer, right, but like around engagement parties or bachelor parties or stuff like that. It's very, very cool that uh, that Untapped can be a part of that. Yes, and congratulations, um, by the way. That's uh, that's great. Well, Tim, it, I got to hear your story first. I, I, well, I don't have any stories. I don't have any good milestones, to be honest with you. I mean, um, I, 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 don't, I haven't really planned any of my milestones. And honestly, I'm way behind you. I've only got 1,588 unique check-ins. So, <laughs> yes, I know whoever's listening and is going to make a comment, how did you start a beer social network and have low stats? I, I'm aware. I get that all the time. Um, the only one that I could really look up was um, the my 1,000th check-in was actually with you um, in Santa Monica at our old office uh, to Duck Duck Goose, uh, which I think we may have talked about when we announced this. But um, that was the, I, I, our friend uh, John Holzer, who's on here pretty regularly. Um, he sent that over to us, which was pretty amazing. I, I'd seen a bunch of my friends in kind of like the so- SoCal beer world going to the Lost Abbey. I think they did that whole like tracks release where it was basically like a, you got like a, a band touring kit full of 16 beers or something like that. And then people mm. go into the Duck Duck Goose release. And so I'd always seen that and I always thought, oh, man, that looks like a lot of fun. And I love the play on words and it just sounds really good. And John happened to hook me up and I brought that in and we enjoyed it. And that was 1000 for me. Not exactly like the most spectacular thing in the world, but it was really cool to be able to enjoy something that I had kind of 
uh, put on my radar to try at some point that a friend sent to me that I was able to enjoy with someone else. And, you know, it was just a very cool moment. Yeah, a little bit of planning, right? Went into that yeah, at a least. Bit. Uh, or or uh, something that kind of sparked you to say like, oh, you know, I do want to eventually try this. And whether it's, you know, your 998th or your 1000th, it, it is, it's more about, you know, making sure that you're drinking the stuff that you want to drink. Exactly. And not nearly as much planning went into that as went into <laughs> what you're about All right. to share. All right. Let's let let's quit teasing it because because I have uh, I've I heard about even. it on Discord. Folks are like, hey, man, quit teasing. Get to it. So uh, I did my twenty five hundredth unique beer. I drank my twenty five hundredth unique beer on Untapped uh, on October 19th. Uh, this was around 7 p.m. after. Lots and lots of photo editing um, because this all centered around uh, one of the breweries that we've been talking a lot about today, Alvarado Street Brewing. They had a beer called Red Ripe Strawberry that the label was really the impetus for this whole thing. Um, They kind of modeled this after a book that looked really familiar to me. Uh, called The Little Mouse, The Red Ripe Strawberry, and The Big Hungry Bear. Now, the reason that this seemed so familiar to me was because in my uh, childhood home, in, in my parents' house, there is this photograph of me. I'm probably two years old. Um, it, they took it at daycare, but I'm holding this book, The Little Mouse, The Red Ripe Strawberry, and The Big Hungry Bear, um, with what looks to be exactly the artwork that was used at <laughs> Alvarado Street Brewing for the Red Ripe Strawberry beer. Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't know what kind of legal trouble potentially that they could be getting in for this, but uh, I, I thought, you know what, this is this has got to be the the most serendipitous, right? I it, it did require a lot of planning, but this was something that I had never seen before, and being such a staple of like uh, memories of my childhood and memories of uh, going to my parents' house and seeing this photograph, which I don't think I actually have this book anymore. I I don't, it had no other significance to me other than taking a photo with it. But the photo is what really is kind of like setting the bar for, uh, you know, memories and, oh, that's me as a kid and stuff like that. So, I take this this photograph of me at at about two years old, and <laughs> here in in my uh, Monterey County house, uh, took a photograph of myself as a thirty two question mark year old, and recreated this instead of holding a book. I'm holding my oh. twenty five hundredth unique beer, and, and it's so course, good. It's so good. The link will be in the show notes. You will see it. And if you if you've ever seen the people who like they take a a photo of them as children and they recreate it like with their parents and they're all grown up. It's the same idea. And it's fantastic. Yeah. So that was definitely the idea behind it was I had seen this done in countless, countless BuzzFeed articles before uh, or, you know, all over the Internet. Right. Um, Even even. I love the books where they take a uh, storefront or a city sky 
scape type thing and say like, hey, this was in 1906 and this is in 1996, you know, yeah. look at the difference between that. But you can still kind of see the similarities. Um, so <laughs> not to say I'm a building from 1906, but it kind of feels that way when uh, when I was editing this up. It's like, oh, no, no, no. They're like really weird uh similarities to the way that uh like my face looks or my ears look it's it's so it's so weird i had never done this before well um, the fact that you had to pick up an outfit that matched perfectly is <laughs> also amazing so let me let me tell you about that i to to plan for this i got the beer first first and foremost sure but as soon as i got the four pack of beer from alvarado street I pulled up my uh, Amazon app and just browsed as many <laughs> things as I could to buy this outfit and get it as close as I could um, to what I was wearing at the time. So I ordered these like uh, these weird strapped on uh, like uh, overalls um, that are, I think, I don't know. They were really thick, like really, really thick. It's hard to tell in the photo how exactly how thick they are. But um, and then I also got a maroon polo. So I've ordered both of those things. But when I got the uh, overalls, they did not fit me at all. I would have been better off just like ordering exactly the outfit I was wearing in the photograph when I was two. Did they send you the ones from your two year old picture? That's what it felt like. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy. I'm 6'3". So trying to fit into these was just, I felt like cutting out, you know, anything below the waist just felt like it needed to be cut. They were definitely high water pants. Uh, you just can't tell in the, in the photo. So it, I don't want to ruin the magic for anybody who hasn't seen this yet, but go check it out. It'll be in the show notes. Um, also, you, you know, friend me on Untapped if you'd like to. Um, I'm at Kyle Roderick on there. So I don't think I've had as many toasts as as this on any check-ins ever. I know I know it's pretty much par for the course for you, you know, 60 plus. But um, being able to share this with uh, all the folks that I have met through Untapped is just it's it was really, really cool. Yeah, no, it's it's I it's fantastic that um, that you did that. I, I was out of I think I. I was out of the country and I happened to open Instagram, uh, I don't know, after a day, whole day of walking back when I finally had Wi-Fi and I saw it pop up and I just, I, I looked and I was like, I understand now why this was such a long wait. <laughs> and it was amazing. And honestly, just a couple days ago, going through books um, in my son's room, I came across the, this book, the, the, um, the little mouse, the red, red strawberry and the big hungry bear. I think we read it oh. actually a couple weeks ago. And I was, as I saw it, I was like, I, I actually, when I saw it now, I got a chuckle because I was like, I will never forget now this book <laughs> and its association with Kyle and his <laughs> hilarity. So congratulations. You've, I wouldn't say ruined. You've, you've potentially made that book better. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, it, it's also kind of meant to signal just how important untapped has become in my life. Not, not only do I obviously work here, but, um, it, uh, being a, un, an untapped user for such a long time, um, this was for sure like a milestone for me. Uh, and I wanted to be able to celebrate it. Let me tell you a little bit about the beer actually. Yes. Uh, I just was, to wrap was everything up. So it comes question. in at 7% ABV, 20 IBUs, real, real low, uh, average rating of over 1600, uh, is three, eight, five. And they say a foray into the culinary IPA realm. This beer was fermented with an expressive yeast strain 
that drives a fruity ester profile coupled with a monstrous addition of strawberry puree. Strawberry puree. puree. <laughs> after after a light <laughs> after a light dry hopping of mosaic, we've then added a touch of milk sugar and vanilla beans for a creamy body and mouthfeel. It sounds delicious. It is. It, I mean, it was definitely uh, creamy, definitely strawberry. Um, lots of sediment in in there, but uh, it, it's one of those like they were saying, an expressive yeast strain. So you're gonna get. You're going to get a lot of that that kind of yeast-driven flavor from it. I'm glad it's keeping with the theme, too. Yeah, I've got a couple more. I promised to send some of these out to some some folks who uh, kind of had a similar experience to me, right? Like, like you're saying, this book was something that was a staple of their childhood, and they want to kind of share in, in the magic with people that they know. Um, that this this is something that a brewery was doing, you know, kind of tapping into that nostalgia a bit. Yeah, exactly. So, happy to share um, and was really, really happy to share this with the Untapped community. Want to show off your love of Untapped? Check out our online store and pick up Untapped branded glassware, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. Go to store.untapped.com and enter the coupon code podcast at checkout to get 20% off all orders. That's store.untapped.com coupon code podcast to get 20% off. All right, let's take a look at some of the interesting beer articles we found this week. All right, I did some digging around, and our first article comes from Bloomberg.com. Um, we, we tend to like talking about ways that you know, the beer industry is uh, innovating and really pushing to be a bit more environmentally friendly because, as we know, there's, you know, a lot of um, a lot of byproduct in this industry. And so I thought this article was um, really interesting because kegged beer, I mean, you think about kegs and it's been the same thing for as long as I can remember. Yeah, it's mm, so far as I know, I think I've only ever seen, you know, like the the real skinny five gal ones. Uh, and then the the bigger ones, and that's kind of it. And they've all I started to see the like plastic torpedo looking ones every now and then, but nothing like the ones that they show in this article. Yeah. So this article it is um, titled "Reinventing the Humble Beer Keg," uh, and it starts off in the cellar underneath the Frederick the Sixth Bar in Copenhagen. Owner Jimmy Streit showed off the innovative or the innovation that's enabled him to boost his earnings by 5% in a declining business. A line of plastic kegs racked side by side like bowling balls against a concrete wall. Strite switched from traditional steel storage more than a year ago at the behest of his supplier Carlsberg, which is one of the larger breweries out there in Denmark and um, in the uh, European country. Uh, because the new vats kept beer fresher longer, uh, the change also enabled him to increase the number of taps running at his bar to 22, adding more expensive um, brews. Uh, basically, the idea was that they switched to these smaller um, plastic uh, kegs that allowed to fit more space. Um, and also, again, like they said, it keeps the beer fresher longer. Uh, the company is marketing the plastic keg as, a, as the most significant innovation in draft beer in 50 years uh, or since the switch from wooden barrels to steel cylinders. That's a pretty big change. I, I was reading today about uh, how Guinness used to be stored, again, in like wooden barrels, right? And it would impart a particular flavor onto them. But steel cylinders, 
Uh, that's that. Those are the kegs that we know today, at least here in the United States. And they do say that plastic kegs might seem kind of like an odd choice. Um, it might be an odd time to choose that uh, for the material for packaging, especially when plastic usage is under fire by environmental groups, you know, especially with like um, uh, the plastic rings um, and other, you know, waste that comes from this industry. Uh, but the new containers are recyclable. And they're actually lighter to transport because they're plastic instead of steel, which cuts down the fuel consumption um, to transport them, uh, so says the company. So that's, you know, that's saving A, they're recyclable. Uh, B, you know, they're cutting down on the carbon emissions coming from transporting them. So that's that's huge there. They also actually keep beer fresher for 30 days compared to about a week for the older steel cousins. Uh, metals, metal kegs expose the contents to... Um, external gases as soon as they're tapped. But with these uh, plastic uh, ones, they actually seal the beer inside a separate internal uh, container that's compressed to release beer to the tap. So kind of like a, it sounds like a double seal sort of system where it actually doesn't expose them, um, unlike the steel kegs. Yeah, I mean, that, that's good because in the article they were talking about, like, you know, we'll keep a beer on tap for a little while, but if it's a style that, you know, not many folks are into at the moment, you'll end up having to take that one off of the rotation because it just went bad. You know, there's no there's no way around it. That beer is just not going to stay as good when you keep it in those metal containers. Yeah. And you think like, okay, so you got now you've on top of that, you've got 30 days to keep it fresh, which is spectacular. So it gives it a little bit of time for people to try it out as opposed to, like they said, a a week. So a week to to get people into something that might be a little odd. That's that's not going to happen. And that's going to be hugely wasteful. Yeah. I encourage uh, folks to go over to Bloomberg.com and read this article because it does get into a little bit of the uh, patent discussion and the ways that different companies currently, at least in Europe, are um, trying to take over the industry and things like this, like you're talking about the Frederick Bar in Copenhagen, um, bodes pretty well for particular distributors because if you buy into Carlsberg's system, and say like, hey, we're going to use the uh, patented kegs, plastic kegs that you've come up with. No other distributors are going to be able to work with that system. And you've kind of bought into Carlsberg in totality. So it, it's really interesting, I think, for the European beer market and European bar you know, system um, and is starting to grow very, very quickly in places like Italy right now. So we'll see if this is something that starts to come over to the U.S., but... Um, is from an environmental standpoint, seems to be like a kind of cool way to uh, to reduce our need uh, for throwing away a whole bunch of beer or, you know, not keeping stuff as fresh for as long. So uh, from from that perspective, I think it's pretty. Yeah. Cool. And especially the um, the amount of energy required to, say, recycle a plastic keg versus a steel keg. Um, you know, we, we, I think we talked a bit about the lifetime of kegs a few episodes back, um, and they do last quite a while, but eventually they do burn out and you're going to eventually have to recycle those. And that's going to take a lot more to melt down than you will say some plastic. Um, and if you do, um, recall, I believe it was one or two episodes back, we did talk about Carlsberg and they recently, um, they recently did away with the plastic six pack holders in, um, and decided to start gluing their cans together. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 cool to see um you know it's cool to see this innovation really 
starting to take uh, take hold. And um, these companies really focusing more on how can we eliminate a lot of this waste and a lot of this stuff that is really damaging and um, really think uh, towards the future. And, you know, I, like you said, it, it does it does buy you into this distributor system and you kind of get locked in because obviously there's a lot of discussion in this article about um, patents and being very exclusive to the type of keg. So if you go this route, then you don't know if you're going to be able to carry everybody else's keg. But it's um, it's an interesting um, thing to weigh the environmental impact, which obviously, according to this article, has also a financial impact uh, in a positive way to these bars um, versus, you know, the 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 impact on the industry and the variety available. Well, I think what that also does is it creates uh, a bit of competition in the industry, too. So if you see that, you know, hey, every single bar in Italy is being snapped up by Carlsberg because of this innovative system that one costs less to get to you and two keeps your beer fresher, the rest of the industry is going to follow suit and try to do just the same. So I think overall, it's probably it bodes well for everyone uh, in there. But again, yeah, go read the article over on Bloomberg. Bloomberg, Bloomberg.com um, <laughs> about the humble beer keg. Excellent. Our next article here comes from businessinsider.com. Uh, this one is after Marines drank all the beer in Iceland's capital city, a Finnish brewery wants to give NATO troops a special batch. So um, a little backstory. There were a few articles that came out about this that I did not include in previous episodes, but uh, NATO, the NATO uh, troops uh, were doing some training exercises in Iceland and they basically drank all the beer in Reykjavik. Uh, so the article does go on to say training for the next big war is thirsty work, especially if you are taking part in the largest NATO military exercise since the Cold War. Uh, so when word spe- spread that a contingent of some 7,000 U.S. Marines and sailors consumed every last drop of beer in the Icelandic capital of Reykjavik, at least one brewery sprung into action. And now I know we, we've had a few articles talking about beer shortages. Uh, I think the World Cup and um, – there was also the shortage of gas uh, to compress kegs in um, Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that it's kind of a, a a story that keeps coming back. Well, it's not like you can make beer on the fly, right? You, you, you It takes time. It's, you know, pr- it's premium ingredients and time. <laughs> That's what makes a good beer. So seeing how uh, a brewery is able to react to this really quickly and ship it over is cool. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So, uh, Tornion Pan, Panimo, uh, it's probably pronounced slightly differently. A Finnish brewery in the country's northern region of Lapland whipped up 1,000 or a 1,000 bottle batch of specialty peacemaker Arctic Pilsner just for NATO troops, roughing it as part of Trident Juncture 2018, which I believe is the name of the exercises. And they quote here with an extra 12,000 more liters ready to ship out, quote, unquote, in case of emergencies. (laughs) Yeah, I guess when you've got a whole bunch of U.S. Marines over there, that's that's an emergency. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And then um, one of the chief officers from the brewery, he was quoted saying, um, I said we need to get this beer as quickly as we can to Norway, and it has to carry a peaceful message. If these people run out of beer, they'll get really angry and nobody knows what could happen. We really care about our Norwegian neighbors. I mean, that's cool, right? Not only is it uh, care for the the folks who have kind of, you know, it's a big story. You run out of beer. We covered stuff like that before, like you said. But um, you are also able to 
be supportive of, you know, whatever whatever types of uh, peacekeeping things they are doing in that region, which this is, is true. Uh, if if the country or the uh, brewery supports that kind of thing, it's cool that they're able to assemble, you know, super quickly and send that stuff over. <laughs> Beer from powers activate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, the article does say that this is clearly just a PR stunt, but it, it actually, due to the location of the brewery, is actually a little bit more than just an empty gesture because Lapland is where one of the um, Finnish air bases that is uh, pretty crucial in these exercises is located. So uh, they're they're not necessarily shipping this beer out immediately to the troops and airdropping it, you know, into the exercises <laughs> because obviously there's a lot of trade issue there. Uh, but they, they, you know, they're, they're playing with it and having fun with it. And being that there are quite a few military personnel nearby, you know, it, it is available for them if they need to. Man, another, another movie reference, Operation Dumbo Drop. You remember that one? 90s, 1995? Uh, yes, I, I do. I think I saw that in the theater. Oh, so good. So good. Next up, we have an article coming from Thrillist.com. And it is how, how low alcohol beers became brewing's next big thing. I believe it. I absolutely believe it. Now, hear me out. When it comes to beverages that I love to consume on a daily basis, beer's up there, right? It's, according to my doctor, one a day's fine, right? But what I crave throughout the day is like carbonation. And the only way right now that I'm able to get that is with seltzer water. I understand that in the United States, especially California, it's that it's that bubble water revolution. But the low alcohol beers would change the whole game for me. That would make it so that, you know, like my evening beer is not an 8% double IPA in a 16 ounce can. It's a 2%. It's a 3% beer. I'm looking forward to the days that that is a more readily available thing in California. I Definitely agree. I think that's that's the same here. Um, I I started getting more, uh, you know, carbonated water, and I had ordered the hop water, which actually was a really really tasty um, substitute. Uh, which yeah. I need to get more of apparently because I'm all out. Uh, but I totally hear you on that. And interestingly enough, in the past we have covered a couple of different things about low alcohol beers. Um, one of which was, I believe, in Stockholm where there are laws requiring certain low alcohol beers and the brewers there are kind of revolutionizing the idea of what a two to three percent beer could actually taste like. Um, and then we also covered a bit um, previously about how a lot of millennials are looking for kind of easier drinking beers in order to just not get, you know, totally sloshed and have all their embarrassing stuff end up on the Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I love seeing the like market driven way that that this is going rather than the like state mandated way or the country mandated way, um, because it's it makes it more a part of the the zeitgeist. You know, it makes it more part of the time. And um, peer pressure honestly does go a long way to making it so that it becomes a regular staple of beer culture and drinking culture. Uh, the 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 days of like your 10% triple IPAs, your 12% triple IPAs are gone, I think, in, in the industry. And yes, we will see those as limited releases, but 
that in, in terms of like check-ins, let, let's bring Untapped back into this, right? In terms of check-ins, um, we're going to get far less check-ins to a triple IPA than we ever would of a 2% beer, more than likely because you can you can just have more of that 2%, right? Yeah, that's exactly true. And that, that would be some interesting data to crush, um, like the session IPA category versus the double IPA category. Yeah. So the article does go on to say here that uh, everyone's on board with session IPAs. Craft loggers are finally getting their due, which I think has been huge. We've seen a lot of that, um, especially JBF. Uh, and crushable is now considered a possible uh, positive description for craft beers, not a liability. <laughs> and I mean, crushable has been an adjective that has been used widely now, I think, in um, in craft beer. Yeah. If you're looking to add that as a tag to your check ins now, we have added that as uh, one of one of the, the tags that you can excellent. Use. And in, in the craft beer world, a decade ago, Imperial literally ruled as breweries turned out triple IPAs and 10 percent versions of every single style under the sun. Uh, And in 2018, that ABV arms race has largely mellowed. Uh, But despite uh, American beer drinkers' collective embrace of those easy-drinking, sessionable options, once a beer's ABV dips below 4%, it's not such an easy sell, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, when when you go looking for a beer, I tend to look for a style. I don't – honestly, I don't focus so much on the ABV. Uh, It tends to be like a secondary or even tertiary like – data point that i ever really look for Mm -hmm. um but i can understand with a lot of craft beer drinkers out there you're going to see something less than four percent you think what what's the point (laughs) sure yeah like is this is this an accidental kombucha like what happened (laughs) oh my gosh we need somebody needs to make something that's accidental kombucha that's amazing (laughs) no 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 that's like when i don't do the dishes in my (laughs) sink that's an accidental (laughs) kombucha (laughs) Oh, God, you left something in the fridge too long. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Americans like beer to taste good, sure. But the that glorious combination of malt and hops and yeast is made even better because it imparts a buzz, gets our awkward butts up on the dance floor, or makes us just a smidge more willing to try karaoke. That is true. Um, we do like to have that buzz to help us get over those awkward social moments. Um, and while this may be the prevailing attitude uh, in America, uh, some breweries are betting that it's not the only attitude. Uh, perhaps they've seen a rise. They've seen the rise of mocktails and low booze drinks in the fancy cocktail world or noticed that light and low calorie beers do well for the big breweries, which I mean, that's very true. They do go on to mention mm-hmm. um, a little bit in here about how uh, Michelob uh, Ultra, I believe it is, is one of the fastest growing um, beers out there because it's marketed with the whole low calorie, low carb um, idea in mind. And obviously uh, there's a lot of health, health conscious uh, people uh, out there. And then, uh, you know, whatever the reason brewers have quietly been introducing low ABV and even non-alcoholic craft beers, testing how thirsty consumers are for barley based beverages that aren't intended to get you goofy. <laughs> okay. And they do say that the market is still quite small. It's about a hundred million annually, but that that basically says there's nowhere to go but up. Yeah, I think also part of that market is going to be absorbed by hard seltzer, uh, which is something where like typically you'll get, you know, two grams of carbohydrates, uh, 100 calories for one of those, you know, White Claw cans or um, any other uh, of the the sort of hot uh, hard seltzer brands at the moment. That is also, you know, part of the market that can't be ignored anymore. It, it takes up a good quarter now 
of my local grocery store and their beer selection. It's all packaged in the same area. So while hard seltzer is obviously not the intent of this article, I think it is still part of the conversation of low-cal, low-carb, gluten-free options that will directly compete with this low ABV, uh, gluten-free kombucha is also, that's part of that market, you know, Um, that is, is kind of changing the beer scene and changing um, the way that, that you pick out beers uh, from the bottle shop, from the grocery store. There's still going to be that market for high ABV beers and specialty releases and yearly bottle uh, shop releases and stuff like that. But um, the the market is changing a bit. I don't think that the market will, it, it's not going to like flatline for those sorts of things. But if you're looking for something that is going to be your regular go-to, I think that's more of where the idea is. Because I even if this happens and I can, you know, I I think there's still going to be the room for, um, you know, this 8% yeast-driven double IPA we're having, but maybe you'll have one on a special occasion and the rest of the week you're going to want something a little more low-carb, kind of like a, like a your beer cheat day, if you will. It's a little bit of a boomerang effect as well. Yeah, because when it comes to how I got introduced to craft beer, it was through wit beers, and then I immediately went to triples and quadruples, <laughs> and it, it became the ABV game at that mm-hmm. point. And that's not sustainable, nor is it really palatable for very long. And when it comes to like trying to um, embrace more styles, you're going to eventually end up on the low ABV spectrum. So um, it, like you said, not going to sway the entire market, but it's still I I see a lot of folks craft beer journeys um, starting one way, which is typically the high ABV beers. And then kind of swinging the opposite way towards, you know, lower ABVs and and different styles because it's opened the doors to different styles of craft beer. And that's driven by both the market and by brewers. I think brewers are doing a really good job of making this these distinctions and saying like, hey, yeah, no, no, we're just going to do like four different lagers now. Go try them. You never had a logger like this before. Trust us. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I love to see. Yes, definitely. And if you look outside of the U.S. centric market, it says um, overseas, the low and non-alcoholic beer market is drastically different um, from what it is here in the United States. You walk into the average American grocery store looking for non-alcoholic beer and you'll find the same dusty mass produced non-alcoholic lager brands that you would have found on the shelf 30 years ago, which I mean, that's. There's that like dusty section at the end of the beers that nobody ever touches. So that's kind of what they're <laughs> referring to. But uh, abroad, the options are richer and consumers actually buy them. Uh, Euromonitor International data shows that between 2011 and 2016, German consumption of non-alcoholic beer actually jumped 43%, even as the overall beer drinking market declined. And uh, China is actually the country with the greatest momentum when it comes to non-alcoholic beer innovation. Uh, there, nearly 30% of new beers launched in 2016 were non-alcoholic. Wow, that's that's incredible. There's a quote here from Bill Shuflet, who is the founder of Athletic Brewing Company in Stratford, Connecticut. He says, nothing has changed uh, on that non-alcoholic shelf in 30 years, so just getting people to walk back there is the goal. Um, they've been treated like a penalty box beverage that no one would drink willingly, so it's just about getting people to try it. And once they try it, they get it. They're like, yeah. I drink that sometimes. 
And in this case for them, sometimes is more than no times, which I think that that mentality is very true. If you think about like um, from our mentality, what do you when you think like non-alcoholic beer, what do you think? Like to me, that says like this, it's, it's treated as like um, something you wouldn't want, something that's not good, something that's like a, a faux pas or, as they say here, a penalty box. Yeah, it for me, it's it reminds me of sports game, like going to a sporting stadium place and there is all the Budweiser beers and the, you know, your your macro beers. And then you've got the O'Doul's and those are typically in bottles and nobody buys those. Yes, indeed. And clearly low ABV beers mean less impairment and less chance of a wallop of a hangover. Um, but there's even more reason to feel good about drinking them. Most also pack fewer calories, which we talked about. Um, that's because the alcohol content uh, is usually correlated to its calories. Less booze equals fewer calories. Um, and there's a lot to say there. And I mean, like we were just talking about, um, you know, you're looking for that. For me, I, I like the um, the hop water that I get because I like I like the bitterness and the flavor of hops and the way that they Im- Im- impart their like essence. And I also like carbonated beverages. But um, I in order to get the carbonation, like what do you normally go to like soda? And I don't really drink mm-hmm. a lot of soda because that you're just looking at calories and sugar like crazy there. And obviously with beer, there's, um, you know, its own side effects, which would be the impairment of high ABV. And obviously there's also higher levels of calories and um, carbs there because of the amount of sugar used. So that's why I feel like the hop water for me is a very good middle point. But as they talk here a bit more about like the low ABV beers, it, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think when it comes to thinking about creative ways to get not necessarily get around the alcohol problem, um, but the the ability to really roll things back and rethink um, whether beers need to have any sort of alcohol in them for them to be considered a craft beer. Right. Uh, Omnipolo, I think, is a really good example of that at the moment. They've got beers. Uh, one example here is Lucho. It's a non-alcoholic vanilla smoothie that's named after their super pizza chef at one of their locations. Plenty of hops, vanilla beans, healthy dose of residual sweetness from lactose sugar. All tie it together. It's a pale ale coming in at 0.0 ABV. Um, That's the kind of revolution that has to happen in craft beer to, one, make it readily available, I think. and, And two, make it interesting enough to really pull folks who are not interested in uh, getting completely smashed every single time they want to visit their local brewery. They, you know, you can split it between a 0.3% ABV beer and uh, an 8.3% ABV beer. Um, exactly. And I think all this talk is not to say that I'm not going to go and pick up a an 8 to 10% double IPA or even triple IPA. <laughs> But, you know, on the daily, if you need something, just if you've got a craving and you want to satisfy it and um, you want it to be, you know, a little bit more health conscious, then this is a this is a market that could definitely benefit. And on a plus note here for the um, craft beer industry, this article that we have uh, wrapping up is coming from craftbeer.com. And it says U.S. breweries hit a new milestone. Now, we had talked a bit um, in the past about how um, at uh, the Great American Beer Festival, the um, uh, Brewers Association, which is the um, nonprofit organization that oversees a lot of the um, uh, craft breweries in the country, uh, they were saying they were projecting that, you know, craft beer was going to continue to grow and potentially 
um, reach over 7,000 in this year. But actually, as of the end of October uh, this year, the number of active breweries in the U.S. officially surpassed 7,000. I was going to say, did they drink their 2,500th unique beer, too? We should have included this in the in the segment <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Yes. Yes, indeed. No, or they're a little bit higher than that. Uh, the stat is, according to the Brewers Association, um, publishers of craftbeer.com, uh, the uh, Brewers Association chief economist, uh, Bart Watson, shares uh, with us that there are 7,082 active breweries in the U.S. as of October 31st. That's 1,100 more breweries than the same time in 2017. So over the last what? year, 1,100 new breweries have popped up. That's incredible. I, I, I have nothing else to say other than, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to see this. This doesn't mean that, you know, a bunch of those breweries that existed at this time last year didn't go away. I, I know of a few of them in particular, uh, even in, you know, such hotbeds as San Diego. Uh, have already closed their doors as of uh, the end of October of this year. But um, this is really cool to see. I, I still think that there's no slowing the craft beer uh, revolution, if you would. It's been a long time going. It, obviously, it's not not changing a whole lot now, but um, I love to see more being added. That's always good for the industry, no matter what. No, this is very true. And I think one of the even more interesting stats that actually came from this, I mean, okay, so there's over 7,000 active breweries, but Bart also says that there are more than 2,000 plus craft breweries that are actually in the in-planning status right now. So you've got another 2,000 that are still trying to kind of like dot the T's and uh, cross the I's. Mm, mm, mm Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I got such a big reaction. It took me like half a second. So I, I appreciate that. Oh, of course. Anything I can do to get a laugh out of you. Um, but I, I mean, really, though. Okay, so we've got 7,000. There are 2,000 more on the way. Assuming that, you know, they hold out, funding happens, they get off the ground, they Mm -hmm. find space, all the legal ramifications and requirements. You know, there's so much that goes into opening a brewery that it it takes quite a while. But just to think that there's that many, I mean, there's got to be at least a decent percentage of 2,000 that will actually open and start making beer for people. So just add that on to the 7,000 already there. And it just craft beer continues to grow in in such a crowded and... um, you know, growing market too. Yeah, I I just think it's good. This is really good news, and um, we'll uh, what will we do? We'll have to check on on this next year at this time, basically, and see see how these two thousand plus craft breweries that are in the planning stages are going. Uh, because I, I every single day when I pull open my Google News Reader, uh, there's always something local. That's either opening up or, you know, opening a brand new uh, location in another county. You know, it's it is really good to see not only are new places opening up, but the existing places, you know, and love are expanding as well.
So it's been a while since we've done our Ask Untapped section. We haven't really gotten mm, a ton of feedback from everyone, but we, we always love hearing what you have to say and hearing your questions and trying to answer what you're curious about. So as we've said in the past, if there's anything that you've ever wanted to know about Untapped or you know beer in general, you, you can send your questions over to us using the hashtag Ask Untapped on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or um, direct message us, Facebook message us, whatever you can figure out how to get that message over to us. And we'd love to hear it. So that way we can um, do some research and dig around and potentially get you some solid answers. We actually had a question, a brief question about why we're not on Spotify. So over the last couple of weeks, I've actually submitted the show to Spotify. So if you've been looking for our podcast over there, it should be available soon. And we'll let you know when that happens. Ooh, that's exciting. Show notes are available at podcast.untap.com. If you've got any questions, again, like Tim said, connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It literally goes directly to us. Literally. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.